All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories number 40 for July 2022. Friends of Jefferson, I'm just a bill. Cemetery is a National Historic Landmark, an arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for tens of thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill, located across the Schuylkill River in Balakinwood, was founded in 1869. It has a history and a population of its own. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia, volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery, and volunteer podcaster. It should come as no surprise that Thomas Jefferson, a native Virginian who served as U.S. president for eight years in the newly founded capital of Washington, D.C., left his huge presence in Philadelphia. He lived in the city off and on from 1775 to 1800. The house that most people know is the one reconstructed at the corner of 7th and Market. It was owned by Jacob Graff, father of Frederick Graff, designer of the Fairmount Waterworks and inventor of the fire hydrant. He's interred in Section B at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Although Jefferson only resided there from May to September of 1776, it is the place where he put pen to parchment and composed the Declaration of Independence. Even before his death in 1826, he was being permanently memorialized when Thomas Jefferson University was named for him. I will cover the founding of that institution in a future podcast when I talk about Dr. George McClellan. Believe it or not, there are more than a dozen Friends of Jefferson buried at Laurel Hill. Now, I've already talked about Ferdinand Hassler in a YouTube virtual tour, and Richard Rush, Thomas Sully, and Dr. Robley Dunglinson in separate podcasts. In the future, I will talk about other founding fathers, Thomas McKean and Charles Thompson, printer John Dunlap, horologists Henry and Thomas Voigt, U.S. Mint directors Robert Patterson and David Rittenhouse, inventor and patriot Thomas Leiper, architect Thomas Ustick Walter, and West Point director Jonathan Williams, all with Thomas Jefferson Connections. This podcast features three Philadelphians, all good friends with Jefferson, who are buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery. They are all named William. William Short, the first appointment to public office conferred under the Constitution of the United States. Jefferson thought so much of Short that he happily called him my adoptive son. William Duane, radical publisher of the Philadelphia Aurora, 
who helped get Jefferson elected president against Federalist John Adams in 1800. And Colonel William Drayton, veteran of the War of 1812, Unionist from South Carolina, whose father, a Carolina plantation owner, exchanged dozens of letters with Jefferson on many topics, especially agriculture. I am Joe Lex, and welcome to All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories podcast number 40 for July 2022. I'm just a bill. On 17 May 1784, the Confederation Congress appointed 41-year-old Thomas Jefferson as Minister Plenipotentiary to the Court of Versailles, directing him to join Benjamin Franklin and John Adams in Paris. There he would eventually become the senior minister in France. When Jefferson sailed for France on 5 July aboard the merchant ship Ceres, His job was to promote American interests, not only in France, but throughout Europe. Since 1961, the official United States representative to France has been the ambassador to the Fifth Republic. This includes Charles E. Chip Bolin, ambassador from 1962 to 68. He's interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery in Section F. Ambassadors to the Fourth Republic served from 1944 to 1961. Among those acting as ambassador to the Third Republic from 1893 to 1942 was William Christian Bullitt, Jr., who served from 1936 to 1940. Bullitt's first wife, Amy Ernesta Drinker Bullitt Beau Barlow, is interred at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. I did a podcast about her last year. Prior to 1893, the official title was minister rather than ambassador. A minister served during the first 23 years of the Third Republic from 1870 to 1893. Prior to that, ministers to the Court of Tuileries served from 1804 to 1870, with a four-year stretch as minister to the Second Republic from 1848 to 1852. Laurel Hill resident Richard Rush served from 1847 to 1849. He is interred in Section P, just a few feet from William Short. Ministers to the First Republic, 1792 to 1804, included James Monroe and Charles Pinckney. And before that was Versailles, with Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and William Short. William Short's family, from Surrey County, Virginia, had risen from indentured servitude in 1635 to wealth and respectability by the time the sixth William Short was born in 1759, although his tombstone says 1756. He attended the College of William and Mary, which had been founded in 1693, and which had been Thomas Jefferson's place of matriculation. While a student there, Short studied law under one of Jefferson's former mentors, George Wythe. Short was one of the five founders of the academic honor society Phi Beta Kappa, and he served as one of its first presidents. He became a Freemason in 1781. Although he was not a blood relative, William Short was connected to Jefferson by marriage. 
He was the nephew of Henry and Robert Skipwith, each of whom had married half-sisters of Jefferson's wife, Tabitha and Anne Wales. There's some evidence that the young short attended Jefferson's 1772 wedding to his third cousin, Martha Wales Skelton. He visited Monticello several times before Martha died in 1782, and he accompanied the Jefferson family to Poplar Forest in March 1781 when they escaped Benaster Tarleton's raiders. Jefferson even became his client when Short helped to settle Martha Jefferson's estate after her father John Wales died. When Short graduated from college, Jefferson served as one of his examiners for the bar. In recommending him for work, Jefferson wrote to James Madison that his character was marked by, quote, a peculiar talent for prying into facts. Short settled in Richmond to begin his practice. He was appointed to the Executive Council of Virginia shortly thereafter, a prestigious appointment that both James Madison and James Monroe had held before ascending to the governor's chair. He was 24 years old. In 1784, the year he was appointed minister, Jefferson, who had started calling William Short my adoptive son, shepherded his protege in diplomacy by asking him to serve as his private secretary in France. Because of some prior commitments and a failed love affair, which has remained rather mysterious, Short was unable to leave for Europe at the same time as his patron and did not arrive in Paris until November. Short spent the next nine years learning the arts of diplomacy, initially at the feet of Franklin, Adams, and Jefferson. He was essentially in training to become minister to France. After Washington was elected president, Short was the first appointment to public office conferred under the Constitution of the United States, being unanimously approved by the newly formed Senate. He became the country's first career diplomat. Assured had learned some French while at college and had spent time with officers of the French garrison at Williamsburg in 1781-82. As soon as he arrived in France, he took lodgings in a French household where he experienced, quote, an absolute exclusion of speaking English and the constant habit of French conversation. After he conquered the French tongue, he was unable to avoid commenting on his patron's mastery of the language. Mr. Jefferson has now been more than 12 months in France. Because he is obliged to speak a great deal of English, his progress in French is scarcely perceptible. When Jefferson did become minister to France, succeeding Benjamin Franklin, Short moved from his suburban apartment to the new American legation. His first important task was to exchange drafts of the U.S.-Prussian Treaty with the Prussian minister at The Hague. This proved to be the only treaty which the commission secured with a European nation. In summer of 1785, Short's life changed when he joined Jefferson at a political house party. While Jefferson impressed the philosophic nobility with the range of his knowledge, Short charmed the ladies with his greater fluency in French and his naturally affectionate manner. 
he met and befriended such notables as Duke Louis-Alexandre de la Rochefoucauld-Danville, Francois Duke de la Rochefoucauld-Liancourt, Antoine Laurent Lavoisier, and Marie-Joseph-Paul-Yves-Roque-Gilbert-Dumotier, Marquis de Lafayette, hero of the American Revolution. But he also met the Duchess de la Rochefoucauld, formerly Alexandrine Charlotte-Sophie de Rohan-Chabot, whom everyone called Duchess Rosalie. The 27-year-old Rosalie was wife of Duke Louis-Alexander, who was also her uncle and more than 20 years her senior. Having married her uncle, that means that her grandmother was now also her mother-in-law. It is not exactly clear when William Short and Duchess Rosalie fell in love. It was obvious to others of their social set that this relationship was something more than just a fashionable flirtation. Rosalie was captivated by this young, fashionable, informal American, a nice-looking man, fluent in French, a graceful dancer, and a charming conversationalist to all he met. Now, rather than being horrified by this affair, her mother-in-law-slash-grandmother, Madame Donville, accepted this blossoming romance. She even chided Jefferson after he became Secretary of State for not insisting that Short become minister to France. He certainly had all the qualifications, but he was considered too young. Rosalie's husband, Duc de la Rochefoucauld-Donville, was second only to Lafayette as the leader of those who desired to establish a monarchy but limited by a liberal written constitution. He essentially ignored his wife's new paramour. On a cold and windy day before the revolution started, Short and Rosalie were canoeing on a pond near the Seine when they spotted a young boy hopelessly foundering in the rapids. Short dove overboard and nearly lost consciousness, but he saved the boy from drowning. The hero then returned to the Duke's chateau, dined, drank wine, quote, to a degree that astonished everybody, end quote, and played chess with great success before drifting off to sleep. Gradually, Short's responsibilities were increased so that there was little change in them when he was named charge d'affaires at Paris, where he alone represented the interests of the United States after Jefferson's departure in the autumn of 1789. When Jefferson left, he had intended to eventually return to France, but Washington instead appointed him as first Secretary of State. And then the French Revolution started. Because communication between the two countries was so slow, sometimes taking months, Short frequently had to improvise his decisions as a representative of the United States. As a refresher, here's a very brief summary of that 10-year period of radical political and societal change in France in the late 18th century. The French Revolution's causes are generally agreed to be a combination of social, political, and economic factors, which the existing regime proved unable to manage. 
The revolution began with the Estates General of May 1789, when the Third Estate, or the Commoners, formed the National Assembly, and against the wishes of King Louis XVI, invited the other two estates to join, the nobility, or the Second Estate, and the clergy, or the First Estate. This group was established as a National Assembly in June. Continuing unrest culminated in the storming of the Bastille on 14 July. The Bastille was a medieval armory, fortress, and political prison in the center of Paris. It represented royal authority. The newly ruling assembly abolished feudalism, imposed state control over the Catholic Church in France, and extended the right to vote. The next three years were dominated by the struggle for political control, exacerbated by economic depression and civil disorder. Opposition from external powers like Austria, Britain, and Prussia resulted in the outbreak of the French Revolutionary Wars in April 1792. Disillusionment with Louis XVI led to the establishment of the French First Republic on 22 September 1792, followed by the beheading of Louis in January 1793. In June, an uprising in Paris replaced the Girondins, who dominated the National Assembly, with the Committee of Public Safety, headed by Maximilien Robespierre. This sparked the Reign of Terror, an attempt to eradicate alleged counter-revolutionaries, and by the time it ended in July 1794, more than 16,600 people had been executed in Paris and the provinces, and hundreds of thousands were imprisoned. In addition to its external enemies, the Republic faced internal opposition from both Royalists and Jacobins. In order to deal with these threats, the French Directory took power in November 1795. Despite a series of military victories, many won by Napoleon Bonaparte, political divisions and economic stagnation resulted in the Directory being replaced by the Consulate in November 1799. This is generally seen as marking the end of the revolutionary period. That is an incredibly truncated version of the French Revolution. To the great disappointment of almost everyone in France, President Washington had sent New Yorker and founding father Gouverneur Morris, only seven years older than Short, to replace him in Paris just as the revolution was starting. After only a short time, Morris had alienated almost everyone important and was isolated by the French government. Short had been assigned as fiscal agent of the United States for the Netherlands. His absences from Paris became more frequent and longer. On at least two occasions, Lafayette appealed to his old friend, President Washington, to please appoint Short as minister to France. Quote, Mr. Short does the business of the United States with all the zeal and ingenuity of a most sensible and patriotic man, and he is respected and beloved in France in a manner equally useful to the public and honorable to himself. End quote. The appointment was not to be. 
Now, despite the enormous role that France had played in the American Revolution, the United States held that it could not take sides during the French Revolution and remain neutral, even after the imprisonment and near execution of American heroes and citizens Thomas Paine and the Marquis de Lafayette. In 1791, Jefferson, now Secretary of State, more or less promised to arrange for Short's election to the U.S. Senate from the Commonwealth of Virginia. One of the seats was occupied by Monroe, the other by Richard Henry Lee. But by then, Short was too involved in the still unfolding French Revolution. He had also expanded his official duties to include negotiations to gain George Washington's administration advantageous loans from Dutch bankers. By 1792 and the Reign of Terror, Short had become horrified by the excesses of the French Revolution. Unlike Jefferson, he had correctly predicted that the tyranny of the mob would be replaced by the tyranny of a despot. Regarding their disagreement over the course of the French Revolution, Short did not trust his mentor's faith in democratic reform, writing that Jefferson's, quote, greatest illusions in politics have proceeded from a most amiable error on his part, having too favorable an opinion of the animal called man, end quote. In 1793, Short was appointed as minister resident to Spain. Charged with the mission of negotiating the first treaty between the U.S. and Spain, Short had to wait until 1795 for the Spaniards to begin to cede anything because they were preoccupied in a war with France. Now, rumors got back to the United States that Short was not welcome in Madrid. Now, this forced Washington to supersede him by appointing Thomas Pinckney to finalize negotiations. Thus, after years of negotiation by Short, it was Pinckney who was given credit for the final treaty. With his duties in Spain curtailed, rather than return to the United States, Short returned to Paris and his beloved Rosalie, who was now a widow, the Duke Louis-Alexandre de la Rochefoucauld d'Anval had resigned his duties in Paris and was escorting Rosalie and Madame d'Anville to the Chateau de la Roche-Guillon in early September of 1792. Volunteer troops who were hunting aristocrats while on their way to fight the Prussians encountered the Duke on 4 September. They dragged him from his carriage and stoned him and hacked him to death in front of his family members. Rosalie and her mother-in-law were imprisoned in a convent, but they were allowed to write letters. She kept short up to date on the affairs of state as best she could, along with discussing the death of her beloved brother, who was also killed by partisans. Rosalie's love for William was obvious. Why does heaven separate two hearts which are so true? At another time, when she felt that she had been threatened with death, she wrote, The shadow of death inspired me with a desire to die worthy of you. Before their long-awaited reunion in 1795, Rosalie wrote of the locks of each other's hair that they had cut and kept as a means to feel close, 
of the gold ring that he had engraved with their initials intertwined, of the day he had taken her to a meadow and declared his undying love. She vowed to him, It is the will of providence that I shall recover my beloved. When Short returned to Paris after his stopovers in the Netherlands and Spain, he thought for certain that his beloved Rosalie would now marry him. It was not to be. Nonetheless, for seven years, they did live together as husband and wife, shocking virtually no one who knew of their feelings for each other. Short stayed true to his love and hoped that she would become his wife after her mother-in-law died and they would move to America together. More than once, Short planned to return to America, only to cancel at the last minute under pressure from Rosalie, who was reluctant to leave her native country. Finally, heartbroken, William Short went back to America in 1802 after 17 years in Europe. He was the only American to witness the French Revolution from beginning to end up close. He had given up a promising career in diplomacy for a love that would not be consummated in marriage. Rosalie not only refused to follow him to America, she then plunged the final dagger into his heart when she married again in 1810, this time to another French nobleman relative, Boniface Louis-André Marquis de Castellane, 1758-1837. The Marquis was 52, Rosalie was 47. After his prolonged stay in Paris, William Short had become city-fied, and he had no interest in either provincial Washington, D.C., or the country life of Monticello, preferred by his mentor and adoptive father. He instead moved to Philadelphia. While president, Jefferson made one last effort to advance Short's diplomatic career by making him a recess appointment to the new office of Minister Plenipotentiary to the Court of St. Petersburg in 1808. Congress was spatting with Jefferson at the time, and the reconvened Senate refused to ratify the appointment by a vote of 31 to nothing. With much embarrassment, Short was recalled to America before he ever set foot in Russia. Despite his prolonged absence from America, Short had made some wise investments. Guided by the advice from the young architect and civil engineer William Strickland, who has a cenotaph at Laurel Hill in Section D, he invested in local canals and railroads. He became active in the American Philosophical Society, but he never again showed an interest in performing public service or in getting romantically involved. At least one biographer has hinted that with his qualifications, he probably could have become President of the United States. In 1816, Short became a founding member of the Society for the Colonization of Free People of Color of America, which later became the American Colonization Society. This group, composed of both abolitionists and slave owners, worked to repatriate people of African descent back to Liberia. It was founded in response to what was seen as a growing social problem, 
what to do with free blacks. The number of free people of color grew steadily following the American Revolutionary War, from 60,000 in 1790 to 300,000 by 1830. Black leaders such as Philadelphia's James Fortin and the ubiquitous Frederick Douglass condemned the organization from the beginning. Only a few thousand people of color out of millions in the United States accepted the opportunity, and more than half of them died of tropical diseases. The ACS was a miserable failure. In 1826, Short became member of a citywide committee that was collecting funds in an attempt to save the dying indebted Jefferson from losing his beloved Monticello. Other familiar names on that committee were Thomas Cadwallader, Matthew Carey, Joseph R. Ingersoll, William Duane, Benjamin Chu Jr., George M. Dallas, Thomas Sparks, and Clement C. Biddle. Despite her apparent betrayal, William Short and Duchess Rosalie continued to exchange letters. In 1838, less than two years before her death, when Short was 79 and Rosalie was 75, she sent her last rather sad letter to the man who had been the true love of her life. We are now both 25 years older than when we last saw each other and many changes of every sort have taken place within this time. I have experienced great disappointments, suffered great losses. I know the unhappiness of those who live long, as well as seeing those one knows and loves vanish one after the other. Oh, my dear friend, old age is a very sad thing. One sees vanish one's own faculties, and all that remains is a few memories and many regrets. You too complain, my dear friend, of an increasing frailty of health. You have happily taken precautions which I trust will prolong your life. You have always been so sane and sober in your habits that I am sure you are still the same. Take care of yourself for your friends, for even though they are far from you, you are very dear to them. William Short and Duchess Rosalie's love letter exchange eventually stretched over nearly 50 years. In 1952, about 230 of these letters came into the possession of the American Philosophical Society. Their translation has been extensively published. In addition to the affairs of the heart, they provide an accurate first-hand account of the events of revolutionary France. By the time William Short retired, he was a millionaire. William Short died in December 1849. He was said to be 90 years old. He was interred on 18 December at Laurel Hill Cemetery in section P, lots 21 and 22, where he is very close neighbors with Richard Rush, Thomas McKean, the Drayton family, and several other families whose names are familiar to Philadelphians. The inscription on his large stone is wearing away, but there is a copy in the cemetery archives. Sacred to the memory of William Short, born at Spring Garden, Sussex County in Virginia on the 30th day of September, 1756. Note, this is three years earlier than his official statistics.
died at Philadelphia on the 5th day of December, 1849. His life, public and private, was distinguished by ability, probity, and industry never questioned. He received from President Washington, with the unanimous approval of the Senate, the first appointment to public office conferred under the Constitution of the United States, and from President Jefferson, whose affectionate friendship he always possessed, proofs of similar confidence. These public trusts he always fulfilled with a sincere patriotism, a sagacious judgment, and a moderation and integrity which deserved an assured success. In private life, which for many years he fondly coveted, he was social, intelligent, generous, and urbane. Upon his death, he was given a seven-line obituary in the Philadelphia Public Ledger. And unless you are a scholar of Thomas Jefferson, the odds are pretty good that you've never heard the name William Short before today. We are very much in our busy period of tours and activities at Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Laurel Hill has four themed tours, one arborist tour, and two hotspot tours coming up in July. Saturday, July 2nd, from 10 a.m. till noon, the Battle of Gettysburg walking tour with Russ Dodge. Russ said he could probably go on for seven or eight hours <laughs> talking about people at Laurel Hill who were at Gettysburg, but he's going to limit it to two hours. He's going to do his best anyway. Sunday, July 10th, from 10 a.m. to noon, Doctor's Orders, Laurel Hill's physicians and their patients, Tom and Patty Stringer, the husband-wife team, both of whom were in medical publishing and education for many, many years. On Tuesday, July 12th, from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m., one another one I recommend if you've never seen it. It's called Laurel Hill Goes to the Movies by Steve Chowaga. It's a terrific tour about all of the movie connections. And then Saturday, July 23rd, from 1 to 3 p.m., another one that I recommend if you've never seen it. Heavenly Intonations, Laurel Hill's musical legacy with longtime guide Rich Wilhelm. Now, an arborist tour, Friday, July 22nd, from 6 until 8 p.m. Shade Trees of Summer Tour at Laurel Hill with the arborist Aaron Greenberg. And there are, oh, I said two, there are actually three Hotspots tours. Uh, these are the general tours, Hotspots and Storied Plots. If you've never been there, they serve as a terrific introduction to Laurel Hill Cemetery. Saturday, July 9th, from 10 until noon, Dave Schwartzkopf. Thursday, July 21st, from 10 until noon, Jim Hentz. And then Friday, July 29th, from 10 a.m. until noon. I do not know who the guide will be for that. Uh, That information was not on the website. And we have a movie night, July 15th, from 8.30 until 10.30 at Laurel Hill. The Sandlot will be the movie. Get your tickets in advance for that. West Laurel Hill Cemetery has a Sacred Spaces and Storied Places tour on Saturday, July 23rd from 10 until 11.30 a.m. Jen Kravinkas is the guide for that. There's a virtual death cafe 
on Thursday, July 7th from 6.30 to 7.30, and a virtual book club of Boneyard Bookworms on Wednesday, July 20th from 6 until 7.30 p.m. You can find out more about those at the website, thelaurelhillcemetery.org. The Inside the Mausoleum Tour at West Laurel Hill for members only has been solidly booked for months. If you become a member of the Friends of Laurel Hill and get advance notice for any and all members-only presentations, you might get inside the mausoleums. Don't forget the on-demand virtual online tours at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Download the app. It'll take you from either the gatehouse or the pedestrian entrance off Kelly Drive. Also, by hitting the events icon, it's kind of it's shaped like a calendar. You can see all of the upcoming programs for the next month or two. Something new. There's a virtual tour of West Laurel Hill Cemetery that goes from the Barmouth entrance off the Kinwood Trail to the Pencoid entrance off Writers Ferry Road. You will find that with the podcast, with all of the episodes of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, and biographical bites from Bala West Laurel Hill Stories. If you are a member of the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries, there's a members-only podcast. I did one earlier in the year. It concerns a murder victim buried at West Laurel Hill, a Baron von Munchausen imitator buried at Laurel Hill, and a neurosurgeon opera company founder who's buried in France but has a cenotaph at Laurel Hill Cemetery. And as I'm recording this just a couple of days ago, the second members-only podcast is now out. Again, a Laurel Hill resident who died young. Her family immediately blamed her husband of less than a year, saying that he had poisoned her. That is a fascinating story about Gertie Gorman. At West Laurel Hill, a man who shows up in the biographies of several mid-19th century politicians, but who may be new to you, and the scion of a textile family, who disappeared in an apparent kidnapping, which brought the FBI to Philadelphia to investigate. You want to hear the whole story. Although his family is buried at both Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill, he ended up in Algeria. As a member, you will also get special live tours as well as discounts, and a discount at the online gift shop and the actual gift shop in the gatehouse at Laurel Hill Cemetery. See you around the cemetery. Let's get back to the podcast. Here is a number for you to mull over. 75,088. That is roughly the number of people who can fit into Razorback Stadium at Fayetteville, Arkansas, or Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas City. Both of these stadia are larger than Lincoln Financial Field in Philadelphia, home of the Eagles, which seats about 70,000, or Franklin Field, which seats about 65,000. But it's far less than Penn State's Beaver Stadium, which holds more than 106,000 people, or the old JFK Stadium in South Philly, which could hold 102,000. That number, 75,088 is the sum of 45,467 and 29,621. It is the total number of ballots 
counted in the 1800 United States presidential election when Democratic Republican Thomas Jefferson of Virginia defeated Federalist John Adams of Massachusetts. Jefferson carried nine states with 73 electoral votes. Adams carried seven states with 65 electoral votes. Adams had, of course, been vice president under George Washington, and Jefferson had been vice president under Adams. The two men who were friends became bitter political enemies. However, they did reconcile by their deaths on the same day in 1826, July 4th, the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And as I mentioned in an earlier podcast, Jefferson's attending physician at his death was Ropley Dunglinson, buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery in Section B. Adams and the Federalists favored a strong central government and close relations with Great Britain. Jefferson and the Democratic Republicans favored decentralization to the state governments and opposed taxes being levied by the Federalists. The smear campaign conducted by both sides might sound eerily familiar in the 21st century. Both Adams and Jefferson admitted that the results might have been different had it not been for the Philadelphia-based newspaper, The Aurora, which was staunchly pro-Jefferson. Following the often bitter debate over the ratification of the United States Constitution in 1789, the Bill of Rights addressed objections raised by anti-federalists. These first ten amendments added to the Constitution specific guarantees of personal freedoms and rights, clear limitations on the government's power in judicial and other proceedings, and explicit declarations that all powers not specifically granted to the federal government by the Constitution are reserved to the states or the people. The First Amendment states, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. These are the words that are engraved on a large stone. You can see on Independence Mall, the front lawn of Independence Hall in Philadelphia. Now, where this sounds like something that might have come from Jefferson's pen, recall that he was serving as minister in Paris at this time, had nothing to do with its writing. Freedom of the press was not a new concept. Sweden was the first country in the world to adopt freedom of the press into its constitution with the Freedom of the Press Act of 1766. That's one of the four fundamental laws of the realm. In the United States colonies, one of the earliest cases concerning freedom of the press had occurred in 1734. In a libel case against the New York Weekly Journal, publisher John Peter Zenger was sued by British Governor William Cosby. Zenger was acquitted, and the publication continued until 1751. At the time, there were only two newspapers in New York City, and the second was not critical of Cosby's government. Jefferson and Madison believed in the need for opinionated newspapers, realizing that they had been crucial to the success of the American Revolution. 
The conservative Federalist Washington and Adams feared that the young republic could not survive stresses of an internal conflict fought in public through the press. Enter Benjamin Franklin Beach, favorite grandson of the great man who was his namesake and Philadelphia publisher of the Aurora. An earlier Federalist paper, the National Gazette, had faded away in 1793. Beach, born in 1769, had founded the Philadelphia General Advertiser in October 1790 when he was 21 years old. It adopted the name Aurora in 1794, when it was averaging some 1,700 subscribers at a time when a subscription base of 500 was considered pretty good. Press scholars agree that after 1793, the Aurora was, quote, in all likelihood, the most influential news sheet in the country, end quote. The Aurora defended the French Revolution. It condemned the policies of Washington's Federalist administration, which Beach considered as tantamount to an elected monarchy. The Aurora championed the emergence of political debating clubs, known as Democratic-Republican societies. It served as the main vehicle for publicizing their meetings, statements, and members' campaigns for political office. Federalists considered these clubs illegitimate and worried they were the beginning of a revolutionary conspiracy. In 1798, Benjamin Franklin Beach hired a new partner, Mr. William Duane, born in America, but recently of England and India, both of which had expelled him for his writings. William Duane was born in 1760 in upstate New York to an Irish couple who had recently immigrated to the area. William's father, John, died in 1765, purportedly in an attack by Indians. His mother, Anastasia, took him back to Clonmel, Ireland, in the county of Tipperary, to live among her wealthy relations. Since he was expected to be raised as a gentleman of leisure, she made no attempt to have him educated in a trade. She sent William to a Franciscan school, possibly to be trained as a Roman Catholic priest. Those plans fell apart when William impregnated and then married a 17-year-old Anglican girl named Catherine Corcoran. His mother disowned him, and William was forced to learn a trade to support himself and his family. The young ex-gentleman served an apprenticeship with a Clonmel printer. Then he moved to London, where he reported parliamentary debates. He was not happy with his prospects in England, so he sent his family back to Ireland and set off for India as a private in the East India Company's army. Dismissed from the military service for reasons that I could not find, Duane became a junior partner in the Bengal Journal, an English-language Calcutta newspaper owned by two lawyers who needed an experienced printer. The paper apparently prospered under Duane's guidance until they published a reference to the, quote, renegade French living in India whom Duane found distasteful because they did not support their country's revolution. This angered the local French commander. The British authorities took the Frenchman's side, and they clapped Duane in jail until he could be deported. 
Now, rather than save their editor, Duane's partners decided to protect their investment. They refused to pay his fine. They took everything they could claim as newspaper property from his home, his office, even his prison cell. Duane was saved from deportation only when a new French commander was sent by the revolutionary government. Duane's admiration for the revolutionary French grew at about the same rate of his hatred of the British and the legal profession. With money from an unknown benefactor, probably the French commander, he started over with a newspaper called the Calcutta World. He tried very hard to avoid controversy by publishing apolitical and impartial stories relying on the news from Europe. But in 1794, the world's studiously impartial European news summaries began to strike the local British as too warmly sympathetic with the French Revolution. Plus, he allowed some disgruntled army officers to complain about the East India Company in his pages. The Governor General, Sir John Shore, finally decided that Duane was a dangerous subversive, and in May 1794, ordered the editor out of the colony for, quote, advocating the cause of France and attempting to disseminate the democratic principles of Tom Paine, unquote. Duane dragged his feet in leaving as he could find no customer to purchase his newspaper. He tried to get a personal audience with the Governor General in order to make a deal. He would avoid whatever subjects the Governor General wished if he only knew what they were. The Governor General refused to hear his case. In December of that year, Duane made a grave tactical error. He informed Shore in a letter that he would publish an account of his troubles with the local government if the governor-general would not hear his case. Shore sent word back he would receive Duane at 10 o'clock the next morning. Shore's private secretary met the editor in the governor's anteroom and bluntly informed him that he was a prisoner. The secretary stamped on the floor and, quote, about 30 sepoys sprang instantly from an inner apartment and presented their bayonets to my breast, end quote. Duane could see Shore watching from an adjoining room, and he shouted that he knew nothing of the British Constitution if he thought that Duane could be treated like this. Duane was hustled off to a cell in Fort William, the infamous Black Hole of Calcutta, until he and his three adopted children could be placed on the William Pitt bound for England. They spent six months on the ship, confined as dangerous criminals, even being refused a chance to disembark during a month that the ship spent anchored at St. Helena. The incident shattered Duane's faith in the British Constitution, and he left the ship as an embittered radical. Back in London, he reunited with his original family and became involved with the London Corresponding Society, LCS, a working-class political club that favored parliamentary reform and opposed the war with revolutionary France. He found work editing The Telegraph, a small circulation newspaper that was the only London journal that supported the LCS. In 
In November 1795, Duane was named chair of a large outdoor meeting. There he spoke and suggested that the king would be deposed in a second glorious revolution if the repression of the LCS was carried through, and if Parliament failed to reform itself. William Duane suddenly found himself needing to absent himself from yet another country, and in May 1796, he and his family set out for the United States, arriving on Independence Day. Now, back in his home country for the first time in decades, Duane was a seasoned veteran of political repression, and he was determined not to be driven from a third country for political honesty. The First Amendment of the Bill of Rights would prove to be his saving grace. After he did some hack work in New York City, Duane brought his family to Philadelphia. His arrival coincided with Washington's farewell address, and soon Duane was back to his old ways. Duane felt that he had to comment on the similarities between Washington's views on the illegitimacy of democratic societies and the British government's attitude toward opposition social clubs like the LCS. Duane published a, quote, letter to George Washington, end quote, under the pseudonym Jasper Dwight. It made the comparison public. Duane pointed out Washington's hypocrisy of complaining about party spirit when his speech had so manifestly reflected partisan Federalist views. Duane pulled no punches against the father of our country, saying that Washington was never a sincere supporter of American revolutionary ideals, and had the British given him the officer's commission he expected after Braddock's defeat in 1754, his, quote, sword would have been drawn against his country, end quote. And the point was proven by the fact that, quote, 20 years after the establishment of the Republic and the proclamation of the Declaration of Independence, Washington still possessed of 500 of the human species in slavery. The author of this pamphlet was almost immediately revealed in Philadelphia and it attracted the attention of Benjamin Franklin Beach and the other Republican radicals. Duane briefly worked for two relatively nonpartisan newspapers, but he got no pay for that. In June 1796, his landlady confiscated the family's possessions for unpaid rent, and Duane had to beg another committed Republican for relief. Within a month, Duane's long-suffering wife, Catherine, was dead of cholera on Friday the 13th in July 1798. Beach, despite not doing that well financially, took on Duane as his assistant. And just a few months later, in September 1798, Beach contracted yellow fever, dictated a will to his new assistant, and then died a few days later, five days after the birth of his fourth child. He was only 29 years old. William Duane was now editor of the Philadelphia Aurora, But he and his son both came down with yellow fever and were not expected to survive. The Aurora shut down, but just for the short time, as both William and William Jr. did recover. 
Dwayne got a lot of financial assistance from wealthy Republican Tench Cox and worked with Benjamin Franklin Beach's widow Margaret to reestablish the newspaper. It started printing again on November 1st, much to the joy of local Republicans. The Aurora under William Duane was even more thoroughly political than it had been under Beach. He now incurred the wrath of the Federalist government, especially since he claimed to be native-born, but was without documentation. He was suspected of being an Irish seditionist. The government attempted to use the Alien and Sedition Acts after him. These were established during the Federalist Reign of Terror in the 1790s. The Alien Act allowed the president to expel any immigrant who spoke out against the U.S. government or for the French government. And the Sedition Act declared that criticism of Congress or the president, but not the vice president, was a crime. Thomas Jefferson, a Democratic Republican, was vice president when the act was passed, and therefore he was open to criticism. This 1800 election was the only one in the history of the United States in which it was illegal to criticize the sitting president. The Aurora did its job of investigative reporting well. In addition to exposing members of the House who had used their positions to improve their own lot, the Aurora did not hesitate to reveal waste, fraud, and mismanagement in the U.S. Treasury. Some of these officials used federal funds for speculative investments, hoping to make a profit and pay the Treasury back later. Duane's influence also grew for reasons in addition to the skill with which he used the Aurora in partisan battles. Republicans came to recognize the well-traveled editor as an astute and knowledgeable commentator on international affairs. He frequented Republican Party meetings and mounted a petition drive against the alien law in Philadelphia's Irish community. To counterbalance Federalist domination of the city's elite militia companies, like the First City Troop, which had been trying to intimidate the opposition since the French War Scare began, Duane organized a militia legion that would be controlled and maintained by Republicans. Duane became public enemy number one to the Federalists. On 15 May 1799, 30 members of the First City Troop under the leadership of Joseph McKean marched into the Aurora office at 106 Market Street. Part of the troop kept the newspaper staff at bay with their pistols, while the rest surrounded Duane at his desk. They promptly beat Duane, taking turns striking him and dragging him outside into Franklin Court. Duane's oldest son, William Jr., who was later Secretary of Treasury under Andrew Jackson, tried to protect his father, but he too was beaten into submission. Later that year, Joseph McKean's father, Thomas, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, was elected governor of Pennsylvania, and he served for three terms. Thomas and Joseph McKean are both buried at Laurel Hill, just a few feet from William Drayton and William Short. The morning after his brutal attack, the Aurora's headline read, More of good order and regular government, with an exclamation point. There was a long recounting of the day's events. 
A second article published a few days later named names of the, quote, heroic commanders. On 28 June 1800, widower William Duane married his former boss's widow, Margaret Beach. He was now custodian of the legacy of Benjamin Franklin. Despite having what was probably the best-read newspaper in the United States, Duane still struggled to make ends meet. He finally broke down when a friendly administration was in power and approached them about doing some government printing. Speaker of the House Nathaniel Macon promised Duane the printing of the House journals, and Duane soon became the major supplier of printing, stationery, and books to the Congress. By the 1800 election, Duane's Aurora was probably the most influential publication in America, and William was the toast of the Republican Party. His continued battering of the federalism of Adams and Alexander Hamilton showed the working-class American what democracy was supposed to look like. The motto of this radical newspaper was, The common law, everything. The Constitution, nothing. Duane was not the first American editor to infuse his own personality into his own newspaper or to make himself the hero of his own narrative. But he sustained his personal journalism much longer and achieved greater political significance than any previous editor. Duane showed how a partisan editor and his newspaper could embody his party and the collective public opinion it hoped to represent. By the time Thomas Jefferson took office in 1801, William Duane was the nation's most prominent political professional and a national leader of the Republican Party in his own right. Both Thomas Jefferson and the defeated John Adams stated that without William Duane, the 1800 presidential election would probably not have turned out the way that it did. Duane remained a bulldog of publishing, but a few Republican gentlemen started to find him nearly as irritating as the Federalists did. Many detested the ferocity and the freedom of his attacks. In 1806 alone, he was the defendant in more than 60 libel cases. When he was sued for libel in the federal courts, the circuit court judges, all Federalists, admitted that he had been born in New York but they advised the jury to strip him of his citizenship rights anyway because he and his mother had returned to Ireland before the Declaration of Independence. Thomas Jefferson thought that he would simply issue a pardon and put an end to the vendetta being waged against Duane, but he was convinced otherwise. William Duane spent a month in jail during the first 100 days of an administration that was partially his own creation. This podcast shows only a very small role that William Duane played in the early years of the United States, especially as it concerns Thomas Jefferson. Duane continued to be a powerful voice for press freedom and democracy through the rest of his life. He got involved in the military. He wrote three tomes recognized at the time as classics of military strategy. His visit to Columbia, published in the 1820s, is considered a classic of 19th century travel literature. A portrait of Duane, done by Gilbert Stuart, 
was in the possession of the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, but it was destroyed by a fire. William Duane died in Philadelphia in 1835, the year before Laurel Hill opened. His obituary in the New York Star said, Colonel William Duane, late editor of the Aurora, died in Philadelphia on Tuesday in the 76th year of his age. He was an able, indefatigable, and persevering writer of the old democratic school and lived in the most stormy political times. The changes in the political world frequently brought him in conflict with his former friends and led to controversies always bitter and unrelenting. No man had in his time more influence, and with faults and strong points of character inseparable from our nature, he possessed much sterling merit, and his history by an able and impartial hand would be highly interesting. Duane was initially buried at Ronaldson Cemetery that was bounded by 9th, 10th, Fitzwater, and Bainbridge Streets. He was reinterred at Laurel Hill Cemetery on 30 October 1861 when his family purchased a plot at Laurel Hill Cemetery in Section L, plots 107 to 112. For a man who helped cement freedom of the press in America and who probably got Thomas Jefferson elected president, he is little remembered today. Thomas Jefferson was an agrarian. He worried that industrialism was the disease which would destroy democracy and was determined to have the United States remain an agriculturalist society, growing its own foodstuffs, but not producing its own manufactured products. Jefferson had a profound distrust of an urban economy and urban civilization. Country people were preferable to city dwellers. Jefferson believed, because, quote, cultivators of the earth are the most valuable citizens. They are the most vigorous, the most independent, the most virtuous, and they are tied to their country and wedded to its liberty and interests by the most lasting bonds, end quote. While serving in Paris, he took side trips to Italy to find out why American rice was not well accepted there. From the fields of Lombardy, he brought back to Paris with him the iron tooth of a rice pestle and pockets full of unhusked grain in defiance of a law prohibiting, quote, the exportation of rough rice on pain of death, end quote. In spite of his diplomatic duties, Jefferson managed to send to his correspondents in America information likely to benefit the agricultural interests of the country. Almost every one of his letters written during this period refers to his favorite occupation of farming. More than that, he sent home many European species of seeds, plants, trees, shrubs, and flowers. One of his greatest services to mankind was the introduction of upland rice into South Carolina and Georgia. He also took an interest in olives and thought they could be made into a profitable venture in the New World. One of his frequent correspondents was William Drayton of Charleston, South Carolina. 
More than a hundred years earlier, in 1675, Englishman Thomas Drayton Sr. of Etherstone, Warwickshire, took a voyage across the Atlantic Ocean to the British colony of Barbados in search of land and opportunities. During the 17th century, more than 400,000 Britons risked their lives in dangerous trips like this, seeking a better life. Thomas, with his wife Elizabeth and son Thomas Jr., had paid five pounds each for the ticket, roughly two years' wage for the average English laborer. The English had been settled in Barbados since the 1620s. Although the island was only 166 square miles, its fertile soils and extended growing season compensated for its size. Nonetheless, the tobacco grown there was inferior, and the cotton crops failed, leaving Barbados primarily as a source for sugar, one of the most labor-intensive crops, requiring indentured servants and enslaved Africans to supply the back-breaking work. Thomas Sr. did not find success in Barbados, but Thomas Jr., in his 30s, immigrated to the new colony of Carolina a few years later and settled on the Ashley River at Magnolia Plantation. Thomas Jr. accumulated a large amount of capital and invested his money in rice cultivation and the importation of slaves. The family home, Drayton Hall, became the house which symbolized the Drayton family's wealth and influence. The plantation would never produce large amounts of rice or indigo due to the high salinity in the swamps and marshes, but it would serve as the management center for the Drayton family's many plantations located throughout the Low Country. William Drayton, Sr., was born 21 March 1732 near the Ashley River in the province of South Carolina, British America. He graduated from the Middle Temple in London, England in 1754 and read law in 1756. He was appointed a Justice of the Peace in Berkeley County, province of South Carolina from 1756 to 1763. He served as Chief Justice of the British American Province of East Florida from 1765 to 1778, but he resigned that post due to conflicts with Governor Patrick Tonin of the Province of East Florida. He apparently showed too much sympathy for American independence. Drayton exchanged many letters with Thomas Jefferson on many topics, including architecture, botany, animal husbandry, and landscape design. On 30 July 1787, Thomas Jefferson wrote to William Drayton, The olive is a tree the least known in America, and yet the worthiest of being known. Of all the gifts of heaven to man, it is next to the most precious, if it be not the most precious. Perhaps it may claim a preference even to bread, because there is such an infinitude of vegetables which it renders a proper and comfortable nourishment. In passing the Alps, that the cold attend, where there are masses of rock, wherever there happens to be a little soil, there are a number of olive trees and a village supported by them. Take away these trees, and the same ground in corn would not support a single family. A pound of oil, which can be bought for three or four pence sterling, 
is equivalent to many pounds flesh of the quantity of vegetables it will prepare and render fit and comfortable food, end quote. On 1 May 1789, Jefferson wrote to Drayton, I have now the pleasure to inform you that a second cargo has arrived at Baltimore, consisting of six barrels, which contain 40 young olive trees of the best species to afford grafts, and a box of olives to sow for stocks. This I order on immediately to Charleston to the care of Messrs. Brailsford and Morris for you. And I enclose herewith a copy of the directions given for the manner of treating them. A third cargo is on its way from Bordeaux, but for what port I have not learned. This consists of two barrels containing 44 olive trees, of which 24 are very young. I delivered to Mr. Izzard a barrel of mountain rice of last year's growth which I received from the island of Bananas on the coast of Africa, and which I desired him to share with you for the use of the society. The attention now paying to the sugar maple tree promises us an abundant supply of sugar at home. And I confess I look with infinite gratification to the addition to the products of the U.S. of three such articles as oil, sugar, and upland rice. When later in life Jefferson drew up a list of the services he believes he had rendered for the public good, he enumerated disestablishment of the state church, the abolition of entails, the prohibition of slave importations, and the drafting of the Declaration of Independence, and the introduction of olive plants and heavy upland rice into South Carolina and Georgia, declaring that, the greatest service which can be rendered any country is to add a useful plant to its culture. On 18 November 1789, William Drayton received a recess appointment to the United States District Court for the District of South Carolina from President George Washington. He was nominated to the same position by President Washington on 8 February 1790 and confirmed by the United States Senate on 10 February. His service terminated on 18 May when he died in South Carolina. He was the first United States federal judge to die in office. Now, one of William's sons was also called William Drayton. He lived from 1776 to 1846. He was born in St. Augustine in the East Florida Territory. He grew up in Charleston, except for his education in London. William married a cousin once removed, Anne Gadson, in 1804. They had four children before her death in 1814. His second wife was also named Anne. William served in the War of 1812 as a colonel, a title he used for the rest of his life. This does help differentiate him from several other William Drayton's. In a 12 November 1816 letter to President-elect James Monroe, Andrew Jackson recommended unsuccessfully that Drayton, a Federalist who had shown loyalty to the Madison administration and the Union through his military service, be appointed Secretary of War to heal the breach between the Federalist Party and the Republicans. 
Williams served as a United States representative to Congress from the 1st District of South Carolina. He filled the place of Joel R. Poinsett, the man for whom the Poinsettia is named, who had been appointed minister to Mexico. Williams served for four terms, from 1825 to 1833. But he was a unionist, and following the nullification crisis, he moved his family to Philadelphia in 1833, and he lived here for the rest of his life. He retained some property in South Carolina, which he never visited again. The nullification crisis of 1832 occurred because South Carolina felt the tariffs set in 1828 by John Quincy Adams were unfair to the South which had to import most of its manufactured goods, just as Jefferson had wished. They assumed that President Andrew Jackson, elected in 1828, with South Carolinian John Calhoun as his vice president, would nullify the law, but it did not happen. South Carolina believed the federal law was unconstitutional, and that it could declare the law null and void in the state. This legal theory was rejected at both the state and the federal level. But Drayton and his constituents were at opposite ends of the spectrum, so he felt a move to Philadelphia was the right thing to do. He purchased a home in the recently completed Portico Row, a series of townhouses by architect Thomas Ustick Walter, located at the south side of Spruce Street between 9th and 10th Streets. Two years after his arrival in 1835, William Drayton was elected a member of the American Philosophical Society. Now, while he was a staunch Unionist, William Drayton continued to support slavery. In Philadelphia, he wrote and published, The South Vindicated from the Treason and Fanaticism of the Abolitionists, a pro-slavery tract, in 1836. It is available in PDF format online. In 1840, when Edgar Allan Poe published Tales of the Grotesque and Arabesque, his first collection of published short stories, its dedication read, These volumes are inscribed to Colonel William Drayton of Philadelphia with every sentiment of respect, gratitude, and esteem by his obliged friend and servant, the author. Drayton family tradition says that Poe met the colonel in 1828 while they were stationed together at Fort Moultrie. It's a series of fortifications on Sullivan's Island in South Carolina. Sullivan's Island would later become the setting for Poe's story, The Gold Bug, published in 1843. Poe had enlisted at the age of 18 under the pseudonym Edgar A. Perry. This meeting with Drayton is unlikely, however, since he was serving his second term in the U.S. Congress at this time. When Drayton moved to Philadelphia in 1833, Poe was also living in Philadelphia. He was working as an editor for Burton's Gentleman's Magazine. Drayton's influence on Poe still puzzles most Poe scholars. There is a possibility that William helped pay for the publication of Poe's book, for which he received no royalty but 20 copies of the book. William Drayton briefly became the president of the Second Bank of the United States in 1841, succeeding Nicholas Biddle. 
This was five years after it had become a private enterprise and 11 years before its assets were liquidated. When William Drayton died in May 1846, he was interred at Christ Church Burial Ground for a few months. But his body was reinterred at Laurel Hill Cemetery in Section G, Lot 249, in October, just a few feet from William Short and Declaration of Independence signer Thomas McKean. Two of William's sons deserve mention. Thomas Fenwick Drayton was born in 1809. He attended West Point where he became close friends with Jefferson Davis in the class of 1828. Thomas was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the 6th U.S. Infantry, but he resigned in 1832 to become a railroad engineer for construction in Charleston, Louisville, and Cincinnati. He did this for two years before returning to plantation life. When William moved the family to Philadelphia in 1833, Thomas elected to stay in the South at Drayton Hall. He had married in 1832, and this gave him ownership of his wife's 102 enslaved humans at the Fish Hill Plantation. He was elected to the South Carolina State Legislature and was an outspoken supporter of states' rights and slavery. Thomas also served as president of the Charleston and Savannah Railroad Company from its inception in 1853 until 1858. This was a 120-mile standard gauge line that ran through the South Carolina Low Country between Charleston and Savannah. When the Civil War broke out, Confederacy President Jefferson Davis appointed Thomas as Brigadier General in the Confederate Army in September 1861, made him a commander of the Port Royal Military District, which included two key fortifications, Fort Walker on Hilton Head, built with slave labor in 1861, and Fort Beauregard on St. Philip's Island, named after the first Confederate Army Brigadier General, Pierre Gustave Toutant Beauregard, victor at Fort Sumter. Thomas's brother, Percival Drayton, born in 1812, attended the U.S. Naval Academy. He entered Annapolis at the age of 15, and he served in the Navy until his own death in 1865. In the 1830s, he served aboard the USS Constitution, better known as Old Ironsides, when it was the flagship of the Mediterranean Squadron. The USS Constitution had earlier been under the command of Isaac Hull, buried not far from the Drayton family plot at Laurel Hill Cemetery. As a junior officer, Percival Drayton's ease with both the French and German languages made him an important interpreter. He frequently traveled to Europe and met high-ranking European officers. Percival was promoted to lieutenant in 1838 and served in California during the Mexican War. He became a commander in 1855 and was assigned to ordnance duty at the Philadelphia Navy Yard in 1860. But after the attack on Fort Sumter in April 1861, Percival sent a statement of loyalty to Secretary of War and fellow Pennsylvanian Simon Cameron he volunteered for sea duty. He was assigned as captain of the gunboat USS Pocahontas, a screw steamer built in Boston in 1852 and equipped with four 32-pounder guns, one 10-pounder gun, 
and one 20-pounder Parrot rifle. You have heard the American Civil War described as a battle between brothers. That description came true in 1861 when a federal naval force, including the USS Pocahontas, under the command of Captain Samuel F. DuPont, set sail from Hampton Roads, Virginia, to take control of South Carolina's Port Royal Sound. This was the largest Union fleet ever assembled up to this point. Action began on the morning of 7 November. The Union fleet fired 153 guns, while the forts returned fire with only 39 guns. In his battle report, Percival wrote, In passing, I engaged the batteries on Bay Point and Hilton Head, but soon getting out of range of the former, I directed my fire on the latter until signal was made about 2.30 to cease firing. End quote. He neglected to note that the troops at the other end of his fire were under his brother Thomas. Thomas Drayton and his Confederate forces were forced to abandon the two forts and withdraw to the mainland, but they did not surrender. In his battle report, Thomas noted there was, quote, not a ripple upon the broad expanse of water to disturb the accuracy of fire from the broad decks of the magnificent armada. About advancing in battle array to vomit forth its iron hail. The Union Navy was able to blockade the southern ports because of this battle. Not far from Port Royal, the Drayton brothers' aged stepmother was on her deathbed. Her last words were said to be, Percy fired at Tom? Tom fired at Percy? After the battle, the two brothers sent messages congratulating the other that he had done his duty as he saw it. After commanding the sloop of war Pawnee, Percival Drayton was promoted to captain and later assigned to Admiral David Farragut's squadron, where he commanded the flagship USS Hartford. It was during the Battle of Mobile Bay in August 1864 that Farragut, lashed to the mast, gave his classic command known to all schoolboys, Damn the torpedoes! Full steam ahead! His exact words were, Damn the torpedoes! Four bells, Captain Drayton! Go ahead, Jewett! Full speed! Eh, close enough. Percival Drayton was appointed chief of the Bureau of Navigation in early 1865, but he died of a bowel obstruction in August 1865. He was interred at the family plot at Laurel Hill Cemetery in November. In his will, he wrote to the United States Naval Academy, my coins, shells, foreign arms, and curiosities, and a letter of Lord Nelson's. Brother Thomas's career was not so successful. He commanded a brigade at the Second Battle of Manassas and suffered heavy casualties. His depleted brigade saw action at Sharpsburg. By now Thomas was in his mid-fifties and his superior officers questioned his tactics and his abilities. Quietly, he was removed from command and he spent the last two years of the war performing administrative duties in the Trans-Mississippi Theater. After the war, Thomas unsuccessfully tried to regain his confiscated property. 
He ended up selling insurance in Charlotte, North Carolina, where he died in 1891 at age 81. He was buried in South Carolina. There is no record that Thomas and Percival met each other face to face during the war, although they were at Port Royal together, and exchanged some cautiously civil correspondence throughout the war. However, when Percival died in 1865, he left the sizable sum of $30,000 to Thomas. Magnolia Plantation and Drayton Hall came through the war with only minor damage. It is assumed that Drayton Hall was spared from Union troops because it had been converted to a hospital. It became a National Trust for Historic Preservation in 1974, and it is open to the public. The Historic Society of Pennsylvania has an extensive collection of Drayton family papers dealing with the Philadelphia branch of the family. July episode of Biographical Bites from Bala, West Laurel Hill Stories, features the father and son duo of Herman and Louis Haupt. As a Union general during the American Civil War, Herman revolutionized U.S. military transportation, particularly the use of railroads. Herman's son, Lewis, was also an engineer, but he specialized in waterways. The two of them radically changed the way that goods and people were transported in the United States. They are interred in the Norriton section of West Laurel Hill Cemetery. The August edition of All Bones Considered also looks at a West Laurel Hill family, the Drinkers. I already talked about Amy Ernesta Drinker Bullet Bo Barlow, a.k.a. Commando Mary. Now I will talk about her father, a railroad and university president, three of her brothers, one invented the Iron Lung, one founded the Harvard School of Public Health, and one sponsored and supported the Trapp family when they came to this country, and her sister, who was an award-winning biographer. They are all interred with their artist aunt, Cecilia Bow, at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Laurel Hill Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It is an easy walk from the bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny for SEPTA buses R1 and 61. Admission is free, as is the small parking lot across the street. Street parking on Ridge is not recommended. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Balakinwood, with parking available at the main entrance and at the bell tower. Your best bet for public transportation is to take the SEPTA Regional Rail to Maniunk or one of the many buses to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue. Then cross the Schuylkill River on the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge, come up Writers Ferry Road to the entrance near the Pet Cemetery. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. until October, and then from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. November through March. We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, painters, 
bird watchers, nature buffs, tree and plant lovers, and strollers, both the two-footed and four-wheeled variety. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery also have frequent historic tours. I talked about them in the middle of the podcast. If you come on a tour, we expect you to follow whatever the current CDC guidelines are regarding masks. Find out more at the laurelhillcemetery.org. There is more to satisfy your curiosity, laurelhillcemetery.blog, where you can read about even more interesting people. If you follow us on Instagram, you'll get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and activities. And Facebook, follow us on Facebook. I've done a couple of virtual tours. They're on YouTube. Laurel Hill Cemetery Hotspots and Storied Plots Virtual Tours number 1 and 2 will both give you an overview with 10 different people. And then All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories Video Podcast number 1 on illustrator A.B. Frost and his family. And number 22 on ornithologists and entomologists. It's available as a video podcast. It's called The Birds and the Bees. Once you've fallen in love with these hotspots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill. That supports our activities at the cemetery. You will have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year, including some inside the mausoleum visits. And at least two members-only podcasts of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories. Both of the members-only podcasts have already been released this year. They may be cemeteries. They are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. You can contact me at joe at joelex.net. Stick around if you want to hear the references that I used for this podcast. Until the next time we meet, stay safe, stay well. It is a long bibliography. This this podcast, if you can't tell, took me took me a little bit of time to research. Uh, for William Short, William Short, Diplomat in Revolutionary France, 1785 to 1793, by George Green Shackleford. That's from the Proceedings of the American Philosophical Society, December 15, 1958, volume 102, number 6, pages 596 to 612. Then there is William Short, Jefferson's Only Son, by Marie Gerbel Kimball and Alexander de Leoncourt. That was from the North American Review, September to November 1926, volume 223, number 832, pages 471 to 486. Pour in Love, Mr. Short, by Yvonne Bizardell and Howard C. Rice, Jr., from the William and Mary Quarterly, October 1964, Volume 21, Number 4, pages 516 to 553. Jefferson's adoptive son, The Life of William Short, 1759 to 1848, by George Green Shackleford, University of Kentucky Press, 1993. It is available online for $794 for this very thin biography 
of William Short. It is also available in the libraries of both Bryn Mawr University and Temple University. There was, however, an extensive review of this book by... Um, oh, gee, I don't know who the, who wrote that. But it was a VQR Online, Witter 1995. That did have some good information that was in the book. As far as William Duane, an excellent book, highly recommended. The Tyranny of Printers, Newspaper Politics in the Early American Republic. It's by Jeffrey L. Pasley, University of Virginia Press, Charlottesville and London, 2001, especially Chapter 8, A Presence in the Public Sphere, William Duane and the Triumph of Newspaper Politics, and America Afire, Jefferson Adams and the Revolutionary Election of 1800 by Bernard A. Weisberger. It was printed by William Murrow, an imprint of HarperCollins Publishers, New York, New York, copyright 2000 especially Chapter 11, Gagging the Press. Some articles, William Duane, Crusader for Judicial Reform, by Glenn Leroy Bushy, Pennsylvania History, a Journal of Mid-Atlantic Studies, Volume 5, Number 3, July 1938, pages 141 to 156. Also from Pennsylvania History, a Journal of Mid-Atlantic Studies, Vox Populi versus the Patriot President, Benjamin Franklin Beach's Philadelphia Aurora and John Adams, 1797. That was by Arthur Schur. Volume 62, number 4, Fall of 1995, pages 503 to 531. And then two articles from the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography. The Aurora and the Alien and Sedition Laws, Part 2, the editorship of William Duane, by James Morton Smith. Volume 77, number 2, April 1953, pages 123 to 155. And William Duane, Philadelphia's Democratic Republicans and the Origins of Modern Politics, by Kim T. Phillips. That was from volume 101, number 3, July 1977, pages 365 to 387. William Duane by Alan C. Clark, Records of the Columbia Historical Society, Washington, D.C., Volume 9, 1906, pages 14 to 62. The Election of 1800, a study in the logic of political change by Joanne B. Freeman, the Yale Law Review, Volume 108, Number 8, June 1999, pages 1959 to 1994, and Popular Constitutionalism in Philadelphia, How Freedom of Expression Was Secured by Two Fearless Newspaper Editors. That was an extract of the book, The Tyranny of Printers, by Jeffrey Pasley, and that was in Pennsylvania Legacies, Volume 8, Number 1, May 2008, pages 6 through 11. Finally, William Drayton, there wasn't a lot. Um, Jefferson as an Agriculturalist, by August C. Miller, Jr., Agricultural History, April 1942, Volume 16, Number 2, pages 65 to 78, that quoted a lot of the Drayton-Jefferson correspondence. The Draytons of Drayton Hall, Land, Kinship Ties, and the British Atlantic World. 
was by Barbara Spence Orsolitz. It was her history dissertation from Georgia State University, dated 12-16-2019. The Draytons of Philadelphia, A Family in Peace and War, by Laura Beardsley. She is a research historian for the Pennsylvania Historical Society, and that was in Laurel Hill Report, winter 1993. Three pages, not numbered. I found it in the lot file for lot G249. It was very, very useful. And some websites. Um, LiteraryTraveler.com slash article slash Poe on Sullivan's Island for more information about Edgar Allan Poe and William Drayton. HistoryNet.com, Battle of Port Royal, gives an excellent accounting of that battle. And then there are Wikipedia pages on William Drayton Sr., William Drayton, Thomas Drayton, and Percival Drayton. All of them had useful information. If you're still listening, and if you are a Thomas Jefferson fan, you probably know about the weekly radio show podcast that's called the Thomas Jefferson Hour. If not, I recommend it. There are literally hundreds of hours of discussions about Thomas Jefferson, and yet nothing I could find about William Short or Drayton or Duane. I have emailed them and asked them to please include those three gentlemen in a future podcast. Again, that's jeffersonhour.com. Okay, see you at the cemetery. Stay safe, stay well.